default start. One of the staff uh, walked into the 6.30 sitting thinking it was the 7.30 talk time and uh, thought I was being very clever by not saying anything for <laughs> so uh, tonight um, <clears throat> I, I want to talk about from adaptation to surrender. And uh, a couple of things. <clears throat> Often there are reactions to my Dharma talks, <clears throat> sometimes extreme. <clears throat> And, uh, and they usually take one of two routes. One is that people feel I'm saying that they're doing something wrong. Okay, so let's get very clear right up front before this talk begins that all of you are doing everything right. Okay? The second thing, the second one is that uh, talks that I want to give for the rest of my life. So if you don't like my talks, don't think I'm going to change. I ain't. Uh, are talks that stretch you. And when you stretch, uh, your defenses collapse. And so there can be a kickback, much like metta, really. Sometimes uh, when, when your heart gets activated, all your self-doubt and self-criticism comes forward in a rising, shadowy way. And it uh, can convince you that your metta is not deserved and that your anger is. Okay, so let's hold that in perspective tonight because uh, I, I do want to stretch you a little. So uh, to take you back to the primordial soup from which we all came some few billion years ago, uh, I want to talk about the adaptation response in us. Uh, when we were single-cell creatures, we moved into puddles uh, and evolved and adapted to the conditions. We evolved because we had to adapt to the conditions of one puddle to the other and eventually to land and on and on. So we have a very strong uh, and, uh, momentum to adapt. Adaptation is what this cellular creature has known. And it is just amazing when you look at the variety of species, both in plant and the animal world, at the uh, wisdom of the adaptations. Because, as I might have mentioned, or maybe I didn't, uh, in that momentary instance of life-taking form, some several billion years ago, it took, life took a form once and has adapted to all the different varieties of plants and animals since that first beginning. How do they know that? They know that through the genetic codes that grass, for instance, has 50% of the genetic code of human beings. So they can see that there was a single moment in which it was all one cell. So when you look out at the variety of things, it's just phenomenal, isn't it? It's just absolutely, and all of that was an adaptation response to various pressures uh, of the environment on that particular cell as it was moving and dividing. Now, 
if you look within our species, you also see an, a remarkable range of adaptation. You see, for instance, that people can live in the Kalahar de Desert and live there successfully. And you can see people living in the Arctic, in igloos, successfully. In fact, each of them have adapted, and, and within that adaptation, there's a comfort range. And with that comfort range, surprisingly enough, the adaptation, no matter what it is, no matter how extreme it is, can be adapted to. And then we then develop that comfort range and then defend that comfort range against further adaptation. If you took the person in the Sahara Desert and placed them in the igloo, they would have a hell of a time or vice versa. And we've all become patriotic to our land formations around us and on and on. And that's our level of comfort. That's what we know. And we have, uh, we lean very strongly into what we know and where our comfort lies. And we will defend it. We will defend it strongly. And just because there's a, a social conscious within all of us. I also want to point out that the current climate crisis is a case in point. Adaptation has to be forced by crisis for us to move and adapt. If we don't feel the crisis upon us, we stay within our adaptable arranged environment. And we adhere strongly to the comfort level of that environment. And as I will mention further in the talk, uh, there's a strong sense of denial in allowing or needing or for a feeling the, the necessity to change out of that comfort level and adapt further. And until a crisis is upon us, we usually don't. In fact, we don't as a species. And the climate crisis is a case in point. It's not, evolutionary pressures are not felt instantaneously. They're not felt immediately. So we say, oh, nothing's happened, you know, and we kick back. And as the climate changes, we'll adapt to it. It's amazing what we can adapt to. I hear people say all the time, you know, I can never do what you're doing. Yes, you could. Just give yourself a couple of years. You'll, you'd do what I, you would do what, you could live where I live. You could live in the conditions. I, as, as a monk, I, mean, I was in a square little hut, probably eight by ten, or eight by eight even. Maybe it was six by eight because I was. <laughs> <laughs> and the creatures I lived with were just. Uh, I mean, to, when I look back, because I've readapted out of that place, I don't know how I did it because daily there were poisonous snakes and centipedes and scorpions and you know I, I when I before I would go to bed at night I would turn the light off and uh, then I would turn it on real quick so I could catch the scorpions that were coming out of the cracks at night and so I could t throw them out of the hut that I was in so that I could sleep safely and so but it was just a nightly routine so I <laughs> gather the scorpions toss them out and then go to bed. 
anyway, I have horror stories that, <laughs> but the point is <laughs> that I could adapt to it. I could adapt to a spider as big as your hand being up on the ceiling, just living there with it because it stayed up there and I stayed down here. Well, here we are. We're sharing the, sharing the turf. I mean, you just do it. You just end, uh, and eating one meal a day and having prickly heat and on and on, and you just do it. So I know the adaptation response. And coming back, sleeping on a floor, sleeping on a floor like this, just sleeping like that. And I didn't have any cushion, no more cushion than a single layer blanket would give you a cushion. You know, that sort of, and I mean, I, I'm not trying to say I'm special, I just adapted, and so could you. So the range of adaptation response is just amazing for the human being. Now, in addition, internally we adapt, and this is really more to the point, that we have lived with ourselves in a certain posture, psychic posture, and we have adapted to that posture. And we then defend our attitudes, our beliefs, our self-beliefs, our assumptions. We hold ourselves in a particular critical uh, evaluation. And we think that's what it is. But the point is, it may be an unpleasant image, but believe it or not, it is our comfort level. So we could have a psyche that really feels lonely a lot and cut off and isolated, and we milk it. We go home, we're sad, we close the blinds, you put on sad music. <laughs> oh, I'm so miserable, well, you know. And, and because it's our comfort level. And we will defend our comfort level against change. We'll defend a negative image. We'll defend ourselves critically against any invasion. Our defense mechanisms have, have surrounded that particular uh, self-description and defends it. Now, it's very interesting because Buddhism is an attempt to expose those comfort levels and those identifications with those comfort levels as false. And it's all hell, boy, because you aren't going to just give that fight up. You're going to find a technique that circumvents that particular level of comfort. We're going to find uh, ways to defend ourselves against the implication of being a better person than we think we are of a holding a higher potential than what we have held ourselves to be. We, in the same way as the Eskimo would defend his igloo, we will defend our inadequacy. So when we bring Buddhism to bear upon this, we have to realize what we're up against in terms of our defense mechanisms. This is not a, a light trip. This is a heavily fortified psyche. And so what we begin to do and what 
stirs the need to change within us is that we reach a crisis point within our psyche in which we feel that uh, we feel the pain associated with the destructive images that we uh, hold about ourselves. And at that point, we begin to look critically at those self-images. And for most people here, the reason you came is because some aspect of your life isn't working anymore. Quite likely your psychic images aren't working anymore. Something has been stirred. And so I often hear, but um, so we bring that adaptive response to our Buddhist teachings. And what I want to express here is that uh, we will adapt and change if we feel the pressure and destruction of our old set ways of being. But how do we adapt? And do we adapt in a final way or is it a partial adaptation? Let me explain. So I was listening to a couple of people in Seattle speak, students speak together, and one was talking about oh, how difficult something was or some uh, malaise that he was going through. And the other person that was listening to said, well, just change your attitude. That's Buddhism, just change your attitude. And I thought, you know, that's a misunderstanding. Yes, you can change your attitude. You can practice joyful associations. You can alter your internal world so that you have a critical evaluation of the thoughts that lead you into a particular attitude. And as we become quieter in ourselves, we can tinker a little bit with those thoughts and make sure that self-condemning thoughts are uplifted and that we surround ourselves with joyous thoughts and that we can re-emphasize a particular level of noise in us that offsets the attitude. And that is using Buddhism as behavior modification. You're just substituting one set of principles, one set of attitudes, or now listen to me because you're going to start kicking back here, as I mentioned early on, because I'm going to step on many toes in this. You're going to, when we uh, be, work with Buddhism in that way, we're working with a sense of Buddhism being, you know, the power of positive thinking and seeing a glass half full rather than half empty. And there is the ability to do that. I don't want to dissuade that. It's tweaking the system so that it works in your favor. It's taking the edge off of pain and suffering. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'm not trying to say that there is. It's just not a complete understanding of where the Buddhist freedom lies. Most of us work our meditation in that adaptive way. We begin to understand how the mind works and we have a set of principles to work the mind towards our advantage. And it's usually within those darkened areas of ourselves that we bring forth those resources. And so we have learned perhaps very skillfully how 
to hold pain, how to look critically at it, how to not resist it, how to take the edge off of our suffering, perhaps bringing forth more positive ways of evaluating ourselves so that we no longer hold ourselves with such disrepute and that we are actually opening our hearts to a sense of self-affection. So again, that's almost everyone goes through that phase of practice and it really allows your life to feel gentler, more gentle and kinder, more spacious, more, um, more space and happier. And it's a, it's a, a beautiful, it's a beautiful way to improve using the tools of meditation. Okay, so again, uh, having positive attitudes about ourselves is moving towards a more ease and well-being within ourselves. Now, unfortunately, Buddhism, Buddhism, the Buddha, in his final freedom, wasn't pointing to adaptative and an adaptive response. You see, an adaptive response, as I was mentioning, really just takes you from one pleasurable response and evolves you to a, the next pleasurable response. To get from one pleasurable response to the next, we go through a crisis. For instance, if you had to move to Florida from wherever you live, or, from, or to another state with a different climate, you would go through the stages of grief. When you adapt, you lose something. There's a sense of loss. Before you have recovered your new orientation and comfort level, we go through grief. Grief is the adaptive response to life. So what's the first stage of, of grief? It's denial. It's saying, this is not happening to me. And you can put the climate crisis in this as well, that this isn't happening. We're just not going to pay attention to it. That I'm, I have to move in two months, but I'm not going to think about it now. It's not going to think about it, right? Or if you have a terminal illness, another adaptive response, isn't it? It's like, doctor's wrong. I just don't believe it. I'm feeling fine. I don't think he sees it right. Now, listen to what happens because the mind is moving in this adaptative response. It's opening. At first, the level of denial, the first response to the need to move out or away from a particular comfort level is denial. That's a very closed mind that will not allow any truth to penetrate. The mind's shut like a trap. The next response is, has a little bit of air in it a little bit of light. And that's the response of anger. It's like, damn, I have to move. And associated with that anger is often an enormous amount of blame. The doctor didn't catch my tumor in time. 
it's my husband's job, I'm not moving for me, you know, it's him that's making me move. It's all of that sense of anger at having to give up one's comfort level, what we know to be true for ourselves. Now the next level of opening is a bargaining position. It's like, well, I okay, I have to move down to Florida, but I'm going to come back and visit you up here every month. Or I'll email you daily, right? Or whatever. Okay, I'm going to die, but not until after my daughter's wedding. I'm just going to just give me enough time so that I can stay alive for that duration. And there's some acceptance in that. You can hear that the door of light, the crack of acceptance is widening, but still there's a lot of tension associated with that, isn't there? And this whole process is a process of pain because what we're opening ourselves to is a new level of not knowing. We're coming out of what's familiar and secure and we're moving into an area that is completely unfamiliar and therefore frightening. And we can incorporate that frightening or betrayal of life into our, our uh, psychic posture and we say, you know, life is just dumping on me again and uh, how awful it is and that self-pitying quality that we can just nurture in ourselves and it shouldn't be like this, life shouldn't be like this, it shouldn't be happening to me, this should not be happening and all of the different ways that we betray ourselves. So now we're in bargaining and the next opening in the phases of grief is sadness. Sadness that we have to move, a, a real depression, a, a, a bottoming of our emotion where we own the fact that we have to move or that we have a tumor or whatever the change element is. And I just, I despair, despairing about it. The next phase that, so we've gone from denial to anger, which is a little more, to bargaining, to depression, and then to resignation. Few people get to acceptance because I'll explain why. Resignation is, well, I might, you know, it's like you've come, you've come up a little bit from depression, but it's like, okay, I've got to go, so let's me, let me make the best of it. Let me just do the best I can. That's the adaptive response to change. And that's suffering all along the way, really. Even the resignation is suffering. Until we go down to Florida and we are down there for a couple of years and we get comfortable with having met people in the climate and the scorpions. And suddenly we are comfortable again. And then we will have come to the acceptance of having been there because now our comfort level is being matched and we have now adapted to this new set of circumstances. And we can see that even though we have an evolutionary history of forced adaptation, when we are forced to adapt, it's not an easy process for us. We get stuck. 
Why do we get stuck? Because our comfort is more important to us than our growth. Okay, that's the adaptive response. But is that Buddhism? Is that what we're trying to teach you here? Because each of us have mastered the adaptive response after a few retreats. If you were in the groups, we have the groups pretty much paired by experience level, and you can hear the adaptive response within each group and how they have been working with their minds up until this point as the retreat has unfolded. And it's a very different level of, of uh, excitement, vitality, aliveness that someone who has done 30 retreats as opposed to this is the first retreat. Very different way that they are using the retreat towards their, towards their um, spiritual growth. But spiritual growth itself can be seen as an adaptive response. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we talk about it in terms of an adaptive response. We talk about it in terms of uh, lifetimes. We talk about it in terms of cultivations. Cultivation is an adapting response to change. And that we are in the process of growing and cultivating and, and on and on. And most of the side practices we offer you are adaptive responses to letting go, to letting, letting things be as they are. And we allow you to remain very much intact as you can manipulate through your attitudes or through your internal processes and come into alignment with what the experience is at hand. And it's happens the adaptive response of the of the grief goes very quickly and sometimes some of those are missed some of those stages are missed uh, but very often we don't come to a complete alignment within our adaptation because an adaptive response uh, especially when you begin to watch your mind you can't really get comfortable with what you see I mean there, there are times when it's pleasant but mostly it's like things coming at you all the time and it's keeping you from a kind of comfort level that uh, you have uh, pursued in your life through other experiences and other entertainment that uh, allow you to relax a little bit within and indulge. And the mind just doesn't have consistency enough to allow that kind of comfort with it. Now, <clears throat> at this point, I want to talk about a paradigm shift because what an adaptation really is is a, um, an editing of the narrative story we've been telling ourselves. I live in Connecticut. I have to move to Florida. I'm not going to like it. You know, when I get down there. I, it's on and on. New chapters in the story of our life. And so too is the adaptive response that we have in our meditation. As we begin to see that we have taken ourselves to be much less than what we really are, that we're not as um, lonely as we thought we were or depressed or as angry, that no one mind state begins to define us, we develop, adapt to a different sense of self. We adapt to a fuller, and wider 
and with much greater potential sense of self. And so we've adapted ourselves out of the staid and very tried relationships we've had with our mind. But that is not a paradigm shift. That's an adaptive response. We've just created a new story about ourselves from now how we've seen the mind up close and personal. It's much better than the old story we were telling about ourselves. And the critical issue within this new story is it gives us far more range of possibilities and potential. And a much less of a sense of being characterized by any state of mind. Tremendously uplifting and helpful, but not a paradigm shift. The Buddha was talking about a paradigm shift. Herein, herein lies surrender. Surrender is not a subtle narrative, a tributary from the main story that I'm telling myself. It's not an alteration of a new way of looking at myself. It is complete stillness. It is silence. It is dropping the story completely. So there is no storyteller. It's a completely different dimension of, of, of space and time. And that requires something else from you besides an adaptive response. Now you say to yourself, oh, I can't, that's too much. I can't. I'm speaking to your heart. I am not speaking to your head. I don't care what your head says to you, to, to you. Any more than when I, we give metta, I don't care about the complaints your mind is doing about your undeserving quality of metta. That's not who I'm speaking to. I'm speaking to your heart because I know each one of you have one. And each one of you have the, within your range of potential this possibility as well. And if you want to berate yourself down so that you can't see this within yourself, you can do so. Or you can rise to this occasion and see that this is within your scope of possibilities. And it's not far off. It's not distant. It's immediate. And that's what the real lesson of this is. If we're willing not to adapt any further within our character, if we're willing to put this whole thing down the problem is over. It's done. Or we can be like a prisoner who goes into a prison and hates being in prison for the first five or ten years of his or her sentence. And then, after 20 or 30 years, adapts and becomes institutionalized within that prison and no longer wants to leave prison because it's comfortable there. Now stretch, because the world needs your stretch. And we can do this thing if we stand up together and proclaim the possibility of it, rather than telling you that there are lifetimes that you have to go through before that possibility exists. Nonsense. In the Second World War, 
a bunch of, after Pearl Harbor, Franklin Delano Roosevelt called the car makers uh, to the Oval Office, the automakers, Ford and Chevrolet, whatever. And he said, we have to build 20,000 tanks and 50,000 airplanes in three years. And we need you to retool. And the car makers said, we don't think we can do that. We can't do that and make cars. I mean, that's going to be hard for us to have two different assembly lines and continue to make cars and also meet those demands. He said, no, no, wait a second. You don't understand. There will be no more car making. You are changing and retooling and producing tanks and airplanes. That's a change of paradigm. And they did. Not only did they make 20,000 tanks, they made 50,000. And they didn't make 50,000 airplanes, they made 120,000 in three years. But not a single car was made. We can do this thing, but we have to make a paradigm shift. That's what's going to solve the climate problem, and that's what's going to solve our personal problems for each one of us. That's what's going to end suffering not a continuation and adaptation of the theme. And I speak to all of us here, our, the teachers and myself included. It is time for us to speak plainly and bluntly about what this takes to, for each one of us to move this thing to the next critical issue, which is our freedom. And stop playing around with continual adaptation responses to our life, making it a little easier, a little better, a little nicer. We've gotten into this fix because we wanted to hold on to our comfort level. That's why we're in Iraq. Because we can't stand the thought of living without less oil. With living with less oil. So we respond to this thing. Our hearts respond to this call. And we march it forward. And it's up to the teachers to keep us on the mark for this thing. No more indulgence in time. We have to rise up. And I speak to your hearts for that purpose. We give up our comfort when we surrender. Surrender is the willingness to release our separation, to end the story of our life, and not find an adaptive response any longer. It's the willing to move this thing into a different dimension entirely, of infinite space and infinite heart. What is it in us that is changeless? We spend so much time focusing in on the changing elements of our life. And we frame spirituality in terms of change. And we adapt to that principle. We don't want change. At first we deny it's, that it's there. And so we hold change off in abeyance, denying that it is there. And then we, experientially we can't do anything but admit that it's there. 
So we adapt to change. We say when something unpleasant happens, oh, this will change, which is an adaptive response to change, a new story in relationship to an old message. This too will pass. This will change. That's not Buddhism. That's not the freedom that is promised here. Now, is there a timing within this? Yes. And tonight I have been very passionate about the alternative. And so I bring you back into your practices. Your practices are fine. You're moving in that direction. You're working hard. And I appreciate that. But know the limitation of how you practice. And that will stir your heart to practice further. Don't rest upon the way that the comfort level in which you have now been able to establish within your practice. See any form of comfort, satisfaction with comfort as a limitation to your practice. And keep moving forward in this thing. Don't rest upon what you have accomplished. Many teachers, when we start talking the message, rest upon our particular expression of Dharma because other people are listening. We think it must be good Dharma. Other people are listening. And we can get frozen. All of us can get frozen in a particular style of delivery. And then our Dharma gets checked from any further progress. All of us are incumbent to see where we're resting in comfort, to see where we have ratcheted the potential of what Buddhism is really asking from us down to a level of satisfaction and ease with ourselves. So there is nothing wrong with how anyone is doing it. Just don't stop with where you are resting. Keep the mind expansive. Keep it seeing. Keep it observing. Keep it learning. Never stayed, never positioned, never frozen or fixed, never satisfied in terms of a comfort level satisfaction. Because contentment is very different than comfort. Contentment is not based on satisfaction. Contentment is what awareness is. Comfort is what the mind does with its objects of experience. But you will not find comfort within awareness. You will find contentment. But there will be no rest with comfort. So you can see what we're up against here. You can see what's being asked of us. And I wouldn't speak to you like this except the earth needs it from us too. And if you aren't willing to do it, who would? Who will? Because the whole of society, the whole of the world has to rise up to this crisis that we're in. They ha we have to change a, the, the paradigm that we're in. And if those of you who are here to change your paradigm won't change it, what hope is there for the rest of humanity?
But when I look into your hearts, I don't see hopelessness. I see possibility. I see the light of potential. I see what we could be if we would only take that potential and expand it out. So am I hopeless? No. Mm -mm. Will we make it in time? I don't know. But I do feel that the possibility is there, and so should you. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? Feel the level of quietude that's in this room now. When we get serious, the heart comes forward with all of its, ma all of its majesty. 